tonight. The Bible says in verse 1 of Matthew 17, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Let's remain standing for prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight. We pray, Lord, for all the invitations that have gone out to unsaved friends and neighbors and loved ones and co-workers that don't know Christ to come and be with us these last few nights of our meetings. We pray, Lord, that you would draw them in. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would take no for an answer. I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, would use us uh, to be able to get folks to be here, but we know your spirit needs to arrest those hearts and draw them in. We pray, Lord, that we might be able to see souls that will come to know Christ in these last few nights of meetings as we have them this week. We pray, Lord, that tonight not only would you help folks to understand the clarity and simplicity of the gospel, but I pray also that you would help us as believers to be challenged and changed in our lives as well. Lord, cleanse us of any sin that would be in our hearts and our lives that would hinder us from being able to be used by you to bring others to Christ. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated this evening. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture that we're reading here in this passage tonight. It's, it, it, what took place here didn't take place every day when the Lord Jesus Christ was on this planet. The Lord Jesus had taken three of his most favored disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him up on top of the high mountain. And the Bible says while he was there, he became transfigured. His face began to shine like the sun. His clothing became as white as the light. And as if that wasn't strange enough to begin with, there also appeared with him in glory on top of the mountain, two men identified as Moses and Elias talking with him. And another parallel passage says what they were talking about is what Christ would accomplish for us by his death on the cross of Calvary. Peter was a fellow that had a mind kind of like a bad clutch, always letting something slip out and 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 and, and, and he, being startled about what he saw uh, opened his mouth and he said lord this is wonderful let's make here three tabernacles one three temples one for you one for moses and one for elias and even a parallel scripture says when he spoke those words he, he spoke them not knowing what he said god overshadowed them with a bright cloud and god spoke to them out of the cloud and said this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased hear ye him and the disciples fell on their faces in fear before god but Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes and looked, Moses was gone, Elias was gone, and the only one left to be seen was the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think sometimes we, we miss some of the great blessings of God's Word when we just read through the Bible, but we don't take the time to really stop and think about what we've read. Amen? You know, sometimes we struggle with even taking time to read the Word of God. But, 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 but there are some folks that even with a Bible reading schedule merely read the words on the page and their mind is disengaged. Have you ever find that happening to you? you you've been reading uh, in your Bible reading and all of a sudden you realize you haven't even, your mind's been someplace else. Your eyes have read the words on the page, but your mind has been elsewhere and you have to go back and read that passage over again for comprehension. There are sometimes, though, times that we read the Word of God and even understand what we're reading but we still miss out on some of the greatest blessings of God because we don't take the time to stop and meditate on it, to mull it over. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, David said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my what? Meditation all the day. In Psalm 1, verse 2, it says that the blessed man is the one who delights himself in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he what? Meditate day and night. God said to Joshua in chapter 1 and verse 8 of the book of Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt... 
Meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. God's word says it is important that we meditate on the scriptures, that we take time to think about it. For example, have you ever really bothered to take the time to stop and think about what happened in this passage of scripture and what we see here? Why was it these three on top of the mountain? I don't mean Peter, James, and John. I'd like you to consider with me the three men on the mountain. And I believe what we're going to see here is not only a wonderful picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but some important things that we as believers can grasp in our spiritual lives as well if we'll let the Lord work in our hearts. What do we find here in this passage? Well, let's look tonight at the three men on the mountain. Uh, If you will look with me, you can participate in the message time. But looking at verse 3, tell me, who's the first person mentioned as being up there on the mountain? And behold, there appeared unto them who? Moses. Moses. Now, what do you think about when you think about Moses? Hmm? There are a lot of people that think about the fact that he was born uh, in a time when the baby boys in Egypt were supposed to be put to death immediately, and he was not. His mother kept him alive, and and, uh, so uh, he was put in the bulrushes, remember, in the river and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and would have been uh, one of the leaders of Egypt if he hadn't uh, sided with the people of God and fled from the land of Egypt uh, searching to follow the Lord. And we read about how he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land, etc. But if you asked a Jewish person that same question, what comes to mind when you think about the man Moses, what do you suppose they'd reply? It would take them less than the fraction of a second to answer the law. The law. Moses is the lawgiver. I mean, if you've ever seen a painting or a statue of Moses, how can you usually tell that's who it is? Yeah, they almost always picture him as he is even in our own support, a Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. They picture him holding the two tablets of stone on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments by the finger of God. By the way, I think Moses is probably the world's worst recorded sinner in history. Why? He's the only person I've ever heard of who has ever broken all ten of God's commandments at the same time. Remember as he cast them down and broke the stones to pieces. Well, uh, Moses, why is Moses on top of the Mount of Transfiguration then? Well, I believe Moses is on top of the Mount of Transfiguration because I want you to see he is a picture of the law of God. He's a picture of the law of God. You look at Moses, you think about the law. Now, let's take just a moment, keep your finger here, we'll come back, but go back to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to find a description or a listing, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, rather. Uh, We're going to go back to Exodus chapter 20 and see a very simple and clear listing of the Ten Commandments as given to Moses on that mountain. If you look at Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not own him guilt that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou nor thy son nor thy daughter nor thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his 
maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Here we find a clear and concise listing of the Ten Commandments of the word, uh, that God gave to Moses. Now, the question is this. Why did God give us those commandments? Why were they given to Moses? Let me ask this. How many of us here have ever kept those commandments? You say, are you kidding, preacher? Well, look at each one of them. Number one, commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, there are a lot of people who say, wait a minute, preacher, I've never broken that commandment. I've always believed in God since I've known about anything at all, and, and, and I've always, he's always been God to me. Well, I would ask you the question, how many of us have ever done something we knew God said we should not do? Every one of us here, right? And, and how many of us have ever not done something we knew God told us we should do? Again, every one of us here would be guilty of that. Well, do you realize that every time and any time we know what God's word says and what God's will is, and we choose our will and our way over his will and his way, then we have just made ourselves the God of our lives, and we have broken the first commandment. I'd submit to you tonight that we probably, even who are saved, break that one more than all the other ones. More times, even after we're saved, because we make the mistake of running what God's commands say through the sieve of whether or not we agree with it, or we like it, or we want to do it. And that means we're making ourselves higher than God. We make ourselves that God. We violated the first commandment. What about the second commandment? Thou shalt not make any graven images. In other words, when you read that, there's no idolatry, no worshiping those things that are made with the hands of man. And certainly there are religions around the world that do exactly that. If I took you to India and you would find at one of the average Hindu temples there, you would find not only the patron te- uh, God that that temple worships in the courtyard with flower lays around it and food offered in sacrifice to it, etc., etc., etc. There are even some, some places still in the jungles of India where there is human sacrifice practice to false gods. And then if you looked around the top of that Hindu temple, you'll find many other carved deities up there as well because there are over 165,000 deities in the Hindu religion alone. And people worship those images. They worship those idols. There are, are, are religions in this world that claim to be Christian that pray to statues images, icons. If I took you with me to the Philippines, to Manila in the Philippines in January, we, we could go to Quiapo, downtown Manila, to the largest Catholic church in, in the Philippines, uh, the Quiapo Church, where every year in January, uh, over 10,000 people crowd into the square in front of that church to wait for the procession of the Black Nazarene, where after a certain time, uh, this huge image of a black Jesus carrying a black crawl made out of mahogany, it's a, it's a huge black image uh, with garlic Guards standing around the top of it, guarding it uh, from anybody trying to get near to that. Uh, people cr- to clamor to be able to get to be the ones to pull the big ropes that pull the cart with that on it through the city, t- uh, around the town all day and all night long in this huge procession that it leads. Uh, there are many people with their towels that they've got. They've got hand towels in their hands. They're swinging them around and cheering, and they're throwing the towels up to the, to the security guards around the image who will then take the towel and wipe it on the face or the side or the hands of Jesus, supposedly, for a blessing. And those that are pulling the ropes supposedly get automatic entrance into heaven because of that uh, labor that they have to do all that day pulling that image around and behind that procession with all of those people are are images from all kinds of other Catholic churches there of Mary and baby Jesus and others that again people are worshiping and paying homage to all day and all night as they make their way through the city streets all night long in that huge procession. That's idolatry folks. Now, most of us tonight would say, well, wait a minute, preacher. We don't, I don't have an idol out back of my house. I don't have a little grotto with a little Virgin Mary or something that I pray to or, or ask anything of or whatever. No, nowadays we put our idols on four wheels and drive them around town. 
Or we put a motor on the back and we run it down up and down a lake somewhere. Or we stand on the bank and we fish with it in our hands. Or we go in the woods and we hunt with it in our hands. Or we hang it on the wall in our house and stare at it all day long until our eyeballs turn rectangular or whatever. We worship all kinds of things that are made with the hands of man these days. Cars and boats and television sets and probably the biggest God worshipped by most people in this country is the almighty dollar rather than almighty God. We violate the second commandment. What's the third commandment that God gives to us? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not own him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? What does that word vain mean? It means empty. Empty. It means to empty the name of God of what it is, what it means, of its holiness, of its righteousness. Well, how can a person do that? Well, the most obvious way, of course, is to swear with God's name. There's hardly a week that goes by that I don't even hear Christians in church or on look on their, their Facebook page or something else with OMG or oh my God. How many believers claiming to believe in the Lord don't think anything about saying oh my God or my God or whatever. Look, that's taking God's name in vain. And when we, when we do that, we're violating this third commandment. You can take God's name in vain, too, by not being careful how you put it out in public. There, there, there's some well-meaning, I think, people who uh, make some of this witness wear, they call it, uh, where you're supposed to, on T-shirts, they put different slogans about the Lord Jesus Christ. But so obviously, I think sometimes they're not really thinking about uh, what they're putting on there. I remember seeing one that had the hand of Jesus on the front with the spike from the cross through the hand, blood coming out where the spike had gone gone into the hand, and they had borrowed the Budweiser beer slogan and lettering on the beer can to write the caption, this blood's for you. How can we equate the blood of the Savior Jesus Christ with, with, with beer, with alcohol that destroys so many lives? I was in a Christian school locker room once, saw a big poster almost from floor to ceiling that had an emaciated Jesus pressed, crushed almost all the way to the floor uh, under the weight of the world over top of him, and the cap center underneath simply said, bench press this. What are we thinking? What are we thinking? Somebody else had a baseball on the back of their shirt, and in the stitching it said, Jesus Christ, official Savior of the world like official baseball of the National League. What are we doing, folks? God's Word says we need to not take His name in vain. And probably the most popular way that people take God's name in vain today is to take the name of God or the Word of God and immerse it in the music of the world and call it contemporary Christian music. Look, I was never so thankful to, to the contemporary Christian crowd as when they came out with their comparison charts. If you've never seen one, just Google it sometime, rock and roll to CCM comparison charts. You'll find all kinds of them on the Internet. In fact, you can find some websites that will list all the other places where you can find other websites that have all that stuff on there. They're often put out by the contemporary Christian artists themselves or the companies that are producing the music uh, trying to get people to, to, to get turned on to the contemporary Christian music. And, and the comparison chart so often looks like this. On one side of the page, They'll have a listing of heavy-duty rock and roll groups in the secular top 40 rock and roll world, all the way down the various genres to the softer and softer, the bubblegum rock down at the bottom, with whoever's at the bottom of that list these days. Over on the other side of the same sheet, they'll have a listing of heavy-duty Christian rock bands like Petra or Striper or Res Band or Blood Gooders on the top of that list anymore these days, all the way down to the soft bubblegum rockers like Steve Green or Sandy Patty or Michael W. Smith or Stephen Curtis Chapman or Jars of Clay or Mercy Me or Casting Crowns or Sovereign Grace. And I can play stuff off of those quote-unquote soft people at the bottom that's every bit as wild as stuff at the top of that list. 
And here's what the chart says. I'm not kidding. It'll say this. Find the group over here you like to listen to, secular top 40 rock and roll. Follow the arrow over here, and you will love this Christian group. I bet you don't have to screw more than three brain cells in to figure this out. But why, if you like this over here, will you love that over there? Because it's the same thing. I have an article in a contemporary Christian youth magazine called Group Magazine that was written to Christian parents to encourage them to turn their young people on to contemporary Christian music. And it says, this is an alternative music. I don't believe that for a second either. I've had people say that to me before. Oh, no, it's alternative music. Oh, alternative. So that means if you listen to contemporary Christian music, you do not listen to any rock and roll, any country western, or even any easy listening music because it's just the same rock and roll and country western with the words subtracted and a little bit more orchestration thrown in. And the answer comes back, no, I listen to some of that too. Well, then it isn't an alternative to, it's a supplement to. It's a way for some Christians to continue to feed the old rotten desires of their flesh with the beat and the sound of the music while at the same time salve their conscience into thinking it's all right because the words may be Christian. But that article goes on to say, today the alternative is a good one because placed side by side with a lyrics mask, a young person can't tell the secular from the sacred. I wouldn't be bragging about that. Not when the Bible says in Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Not when 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Certainly not when Romans 12.2 says, and be not conformed to this world. Whenever people take God's name and they put it in the music of the world, they think they're making it go farther, but it really empties it of what it's trying to say. For example, if I stood here tonight and I told you I'm happy, I've got the joy. It's down deep. You say, preacher, it must be real deep because it hasn't registered on the facial features yet. Now, there's not a thing wrong with a message that I'm trying to communicate to you, but the vehicle that I'm using to communicate the message says exactly the opposite. And when the person takes the word of God of a holy God who is separate from sin and hates the desires of the flesh and immerses it in a music that is, act, is exactly the opposite, it does not make God's word go farther. It empties the words of its meaning. And it's literally taking the name of God in vain. How many of us have violated that commandment? What about the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it's interesting to note that the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments is the only one in the New Testament that is not repeated and under Christ's law of love in the New Testament. Why? Because in the New Testament it's replaced. We no longer worship on the Sabbath day or we'd be coming on Saturday. We'd be Seventh-day Adventist or something if we were going to do that. Uh, we'd be worshiping on the Saturday, Saturday, not the Sunday. Why do we worship on the first day of the week? In commemoration of the resurrection from the dead of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the disciples commanded on the first day of the week to bring the tithes into the storehouse. And so we set aside that first day of every week, that Sunday, not Saturday, the Lord's Day. You don't have to wait till uh, Resurrection Sunday in order to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Well, that's why we gather together every Sunday. It's the celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we live in a day today when people fit church in when they feel like it, rather than putting it first. Hebrews 10.25 said, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. I don't know about you, but what I see in trends in most churches is that much the less. How many of these great big mega churches anymore don't even have anything but a Sunday morning service? Then that's it for the whole week. 
Now, there's no verse in the Bible that says you have to have four services a week, a Sunday school, a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, a Wednesday night prayer and Bible study or something like that. But the Bible does say that if you are a member of a local church, and every believer ought to be, and your church determines they're going to have four services a week, you should not forsake assembling with them. My father used to put it this way. Every absence of yours from your local church services is like a vote to close it. Now, that might seem extreme to some of us. Every absence of mine from my church is a vote to close it. Yes, what if everybody else in the church decided to skip out the same day you did? The building and the property is not the church. Remember, it's the people. God's word says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Like we said on Sunday, David said in Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You can't even spell the word church without you in it. Amen. I drove by a big church out in California once, had a sign out by the freeway that had this on the sign. C-H, space, space, C-H, underneath the question, what is missing? You are. You are. When we're not faithful to the house of God, we're violating God's commands. What about the fifth commandment? What's that? Well, that one says, uh, honor thy father and thy mother. There's a good one for all you young folks, amen. I'm sure you always do exactly what your parents tell you to do. The very first time they tell you to do it without even one word of complaining, right? Don't say yes to that. You'll break another one coming along here in a minute. Yes, are you kidding? No, young people say, I didn't want to, right? Hey, turn off the television set, go to bed. I didn't want to. Shut off that video. I'm at level number 49. I'm almost done. Hmm. One little fellow's mother said, sit down. He wouldn't sit down. She said, I said, sit down. He still wouldn't sit down. She walked over, got him by the shoulders and sat him down. And she turned and walked away. And he said to himself, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. Is that honoring your father and your mother? Of course not. Now, before too many parents here say, hey, pull over and park on that one for a minute, Brother Webb, so our kids get a good earful of that, let me ask you, how did you do with your parents? Let me ask you, what do your kids hear out of your mouths when you've been to visit your parents or your in-laws and you're on the way back home again after Christmas or something else like that? Do they hear you talking negatively about them? Honor thy father and mother. How many of us have violated that commandment. What about the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. Now, most people say, <laughs> I'm glad you finally got to that one, preacher. That's, I, as far as I know, I've never committed that one. I may have thought about it once or twice, but I've resisted the temptation so far. This is why we need to pay attention to what the Lord Jesus Christ said in his law of love in the New Testament, because he said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that he that hateth his brother without a cause is guilty of murder. Uh-oh. Stop and think about that a second. We live in a society where some people have been trained. You hear the word racist, racist thrown around everywhere these days. But seriously, there are some people who have been trained growing up to hate people or races or colors of folks or countries of folks or whatever else. I was preaching in Malawi. I said, you know, you folks may be black. They're not. They're dark brown. And I said, I may be white. I'm not. I may be peach or something. I don't know what you call that. But I said, you know, if you follow our bloodlines all the way back, you're going to come to the very same two human beings, Adam and Eve. No matter what continent we came from, what language we speak, what color our skin might be, every one of us are brothers and sisters, one of another, because we're descendants of the same human parents. And the Bible says that when you and I hate somebody else who's never done anything to us, we are murderers in God's sight. We've violated that commandment. We don't like to think about it, but sometimes we have done that. The Word of God tells us, thou shalt not kill 
And then what about the next one? Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. They'll say, well, wait a minute. I, I, I've never committed the physical act of adultery. Now we live in a day today when people, are, there's so much uh, sexual sin. There's so much immorality in society today. You can't even turn on a sports activity anymore without uh, having uh, filthy commercials in between and cheerleaders half-dressed and all the rest of that kind of stuff that goes on and the innuendos thrown around even by the announcers and things that way. You can't so I've, I've watch hardly any television today without having some other kind of filth like that's been thrown on. And how much uh, of an epidemic is there in this country and around? the world with pornography and it's hardly a week that goes by or a month that goes by that you you don't hear about another Christian another person that you know who's run off uh, from their husband or their wife uh, with somebody they met in the internet in a chat room someplace or somebody who's been caught in pornography you have Robert Kraft the owner of the Patriots who was just recently arrested or uh, 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 charged for being involved in, in, in a massage parlors. And those are all over the country. When we drive around all over the country, you'll see those things almost everywhere you go, even in small villages and small towns. Why? Because it, what we have in society today, because of the, the television media and the, 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 the Internet and all the rest of that is a, is a pervasiveness of, of perversion in this world. And again, there are people who say, well, preacher, I've never committed the physical act of adultery. But do you remember what Jesus said about this as well? He said, you have heard that it is said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that a man that looketh on a woman to lust after her in his heart hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. And I don't believe God was just picking on men, though men are more attracted by what they see and women by the touch. But the fact of the matter is that the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. It's interesting to find out that I heard in one, one study that, that usually when somebody is caught in think, something like pornography or whatever, that when it's discovered, it's been going on for at least 10 years before anybody caught it. How many people have violated that commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery? Living a day-to-day, people don't think anything at all about cheating on their husband, cheating on their wife, running off with this. Or they don't even bother to get married anymore. Why? They don't have to worry about going through the trouble of being divorced. That's not what God intended according to his word. It's a violation of his law. Uh, what about the next commandment, number eight? It says, thou shalt not steal. It's never right to take anything if it doesn't belong to you. Whether it's when you were younger, you change on your parents' dresser in the bedroom, right? You walk by, oh, there's change. Hey, it's in the house. It's family money. I'm family. Thank you for that donation. And you took it. That's That's stealing. Maybe it was a toy from somebody next door. Maybe it was the kid in the, in the class you had that had one of those, those cartoon pens with a character, uh, you know, from some television cartoon, and, 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 and it write, the pen writes underwater and upside down and invisible ink or something else that way, and there's no chance at all you would ever be able to get one of those yourself because it, you can only get that out of the boxes of cereal, that sugary stuff your parents will never buy you because it's not good for you. But that friend that sat in the desk next to you that had one of those had to go to the bathroom in the middle of class one day or, and, and left that pen sitting there on the desk. And so what did you do? You know, you, you, you looked around, did the same by watching. So you reached over there your foot and caused a tidy little earthquake at the desk. <clears throat> and the pen fell off on the floor and you said, oh, <laughs> something on the floor. <gasps> Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Stuck it in your pocket. Waited for a couple days before you brought it out to use it. Somebody said, hey, 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 you have my pen. No, no, it's mine. I found this. Stealing. People don't think anything about dishonesty and stealing today. They, they do that all the time, it seems. People take from their employers all the time. 
They'll steal tools, wrenches, screwdrivers, pens, pencils, all kinds of stuff like that. People, you know, there's some people who say, well, oh, brother, you know, businesses expect to lose so much product every year from disappearing and walking. It shouldn't be in the case of Christians. Well, everybody, Christians shouldn't. Well, there's more than one way you can steal from people. You know how else you can steal from your employer? You can sign a contract that says you're going to work so many hours for so many days for so much pay, and then you can go to work and hang around the water cooler and cut corners and don't do what you said you were going to do. And then some people actually have the audacity to go on strike in order to get their employer to pay them more money for doing less work than they signed up to do. Folks, that is stealing from your employer. I'll tell you something else, and I'm not trying to be politically incorrect here tonight or whatever, but uh, I don't I don't see a welfare society in the Word of God either. The Bible says they that would not work, neither should he eat. It says if we don't provide for the needs of our own household, we've denied the faith and we're worse than an infidel. But there are some people today that claim to be Christians who figured out, like some other people in the world have, that they can they not go to work and they can collect enough money from the government to make their ends meet without having to go to work at all. In fact, some people think, I had one fellow tell me in a gas station that the, the kind of uh, the money he got from the government, he could make more money from the government than he, could, he would make if he worked a job himself. And think about all the wickedness that our, our government even promotes. When it comes to, I, I don't know, I'm sure pastors probably went into this before too. I, I've sat with pastors before witnessing to a couple in their home and coming to the place where you say to them, wouldn't you like to accept Christ as personal Savior? And one of them says, wait a minute, there's a problem. What? We're not married. And if we get saved, then either we've got to have one of us move out or then we've got to get married and that'll be a problem because we can make more money being two single people living together than we could make if we were married as husband and wife living as a couple. And our own government regulations are encouraging people living together out of wedlock. Now, where does the money come from that people live on? I mean, some, uh, there are some people, honestly, the only work they see their parents do is when they get up out of their, uh, their Easy Boy recliner in front of the big screen television set to uh, waddle out to the mailbox and, and get the next government check and waddle back in again. Where does that money come from? Ever bother to ask anybody about that? You know, back years ago, somebody did an interview on the radio or whatever, got, got broadcast around people saying, well, you know, it's, it's the, the new president coming in. They're gonna, he's going to give it to me. He's going to pay my bills. Well, where's he going to get the money from? A stash he's got someplace. Well, where's he going to get from the government? Where does the government get it from? From your next-door neighbors who are working three jobs trying to keep body and soul together and take care of the needs of their family and trying to help others around them. You're literally stealing money out of your neighbor's pocket and Spending it yourself. People don't think about that. But that's stealing. The Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. That's pretty plain in the Word of God. Then what? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That's number nine. That means it's never right to lie. It's never right to stretch the truth. It's never right to misrepresent yourself. The Bible tells us, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. But we live in a society, people today, who do not think anything at all about lying directly to your face. I mean, how many of you have even had somebody that you in the past have invited to come to something like a revival meeting like this and they said, oh yeah, I'll be there one night because they knew that's what you wanted to hear, but they never did come, did they? They had no intention of coming. So they lied to your face. 
Honestly, that's why I like what one evangelist said when he was out visiting and inviting people to come to church, and the man said, well, I'll try to be there. And he said, good, I'll see you at the meeting. He said, well, I didn't say I'd be there. He said, I'll try to be there. He said, good, I'll see you at the meeting. He said, no, I didn't say I'd be there. He said, I'll try to be there. He said, well, I understand. But he said, when you get sick and you try to get to the hospital, you usually make it, right? Yeah. And when you need gas in your car and you try to get to the gas station, you usually get there. Yeah. And when you're out of food at your house and you try to get to the grocery store, you usually get there too, don't you? Yeah. Well, then I'll see you at the service. Now listen, folks, we need to be careful about what we say. Let's not be like the rest of the world around us and not think anything at all about stretching the truth to make ourselves look better for an employee position or some other such thing that way. We need to let our yay be yay and our nay be nay be honest before the world around us today because if we bear false witness, we are violating God's law. You know another way people do that? By gossip. By gossip. You know what gossip is? It's it's spreading uh, private information about somebody when you're not part of the problem or part of the solution of the problem. There are a lot of people that are that way. You know, in some churches, I'm sure it wouldn't take me very long just to ask a few people to find out who in the church I needed to talk to to find out what's going on in everybody else's family. Sad to say, in our own home church, a little church up in Western Maryland years ago, there was a man in the church whose wife was so much of a gossip, she was never at home. She was always running all over the community. If you knew, wanted to hear, even if you didn't want to hear what was happening with everybody else, she was going to tell you. She was known community-wide as a gossip. In fact, everybody in the community knew her by her nickname, Roadrunner. Can you believe that? A church lady? Roadrunner. Because she was a well-known gossip. Look, when you and I are talking, did you hear what so-and-so said? Oh, really? Mm, that's terrible. That's gossiping. We need to be careful that we don't violate God's commands with gossip. If, if you would, look, when I was a kid in the youth department, we used to play this game every once in a while. They called it, at that time, Whisper Down the Lane. I think they'd call it telephone or something else these days. But they'd get a, every, everybody make a circle with their chairs, and everybody'd sit down in the chairs, and then the leader would think of something to say, and he would turn to the person on their right and whisper something in that person's ear so nobody else could hear what he said. That person then turned and whispered it in the ear of the person next to them, who turned and whispered what they heard to the person next to them, and it went all the way around the circle of chairs till it came around to the person on this side of the leader, who then had to say out loud what it was they were told in their ear. Anybody ever play that game? Well, look at all the experienced people here. Let me ask you a question. If you've ever played that game, is what comes out on this side of the leader ever anywhere near what went in on that side? No. Would you think about that for a second the next time somebody calls you up or stops under and says, did you hear what's going on with so-and-so now? Really? What they're about to tell you may be just like the end of that circle list. It's been added to, it's been subtracted from, it's been made juicier, it's been made more interesting, it's been whatever else. And what you're hearing is gossip and what you turn around and tell somebody else is gossip and it's bearing false witness. How would you like people to do that with you? I wouldn't want people going around the community talking about me that way. Then don't you do it. Don't you do it. Bite your tongue, as they say, or whatever you got to do to keep yourself from gossiping, but that's a violation of God's command. And what about, what about the, the, the 10th commandment? What is that? Thou shalt not covet. What does it mean to covet? Well, how many of you are content with what you have? Well, I would be if I could live in the house that guy lives in. If I could drive the car that girl drives. If I had the money that person makes or whatever else. Look, you see, that's coveting. Wishing we could have something that somebody else has. They didn't have it. I wish I had it to them. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. But we live in a society today where we're taught by the television, by the media, by everybody else. You've got to get more. got to have more stuff any way you can get it. 
And so we find ourselves coveting the things that other people have. We violate God's commandments. What is the point of going through all of those commandments tonight? Well, let me ask you, why did God give us those commandments in the first place? I mean, look, if God knew none of us was going to keep them anyway, why did he give them to us? Well, the Bible tells you. Romans 3, verse 20. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Well, what does that mean, preacher? Well, here, look, what if you went out here and what what is the road out here, Columbia Pike? And you drove between here and Thompson Station, is that it? Uh, back and forth at 150 miles an hour without stopping. If, if there are no speed limit signs, stop lights, or stop signs, you haven't done a thing wrong, right? But what happens when they put up a speed limit, 45 mile an hour sign, or a stop light, or a stop sign, and then you breeze back and forth between here and there at 150 miles an hour without stopping? If you didn't realize you did wrong, someone else will likely assist you in understanding that fact. And an officer of the Law will pull you over and say, didn't you see that sign? By the law is the knowledge of sin. Oh, but people say, wait a minute, preacher. What is sin? Sin to you may not be the same as sin to me. Some people want to use the excuse, sin to your church may not be the same as sin to my church. You know what? God didn't leave the definition of sin up for us to figure out. He gave it to us in 1 John 3, verse 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. So if we're violating God's laws, then we have all sinned. Amazing. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.12, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22, the scriptures have concluded, all under sin. There's not a one of us who can say, hey, I'm not a sinner preacher because there's not a one of us who can look at these commandments and say, we've kept them. Why do you think Why do you think that the American Civil Liberties Union and the Freedom from Religion Organization in Wisconsin are desperately trying to get rid of the Ten Commandments out of our classrooms, our public buildings, and and anything else? Nobody wants to look at that. Why? Because when we look at the law of God, we realize we're violating the laws of a holy God. And that means we're not the goody-two-shoes we thought we are. That means that every one of us proves by that that we are sinners. Do you realize that we are not sinners because we sin? We sin because we were born sinners. It's in our nature from the time we've been born. Romans 5.12 said, Wherefore is but one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for all of sin. Look, sin is passed down from our parents to us, and the consequence of it is death passed down to us from our human parents. And the Bible says we are, it's not, we're, we're not wicked because of our outside. When that outside comes in, it's because of the wickedness in the inside that comes out. From within, out of the heart of man, proceedeth that long list of sins God hates. So the Bible tells us, here we are in this passage of Scripture, back to Matthew chapter 17 then, and verse 3. Behold, there appeared unto them who? Moses. Why is Moses on top of the Mount of Transfiguration? He is a picture of the law of God. Why did God give us that law? So that we would recognize our sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Well, go back to Matthew chapter 17. Don't worry, the last two people come faster than the first one did. Look at verse 3 again. Some of you are looking worried. Uh, uh, what does it say? Matthew 17, verse 3. Behold, there appeared in them Moses and who else? Elias. Now, who is Elias? That sounds like one of two names in the Old Testament, Elijah or Elisha. How many think it's Elijah? How many think it's Elisha? Okay, how many don't think? 
That's what I thought. Okay, all right. No, if you guessed Elijah, you are correct. When you see Elias mentioned in the Bible, it's talking about Elijah. Okay, preacher, I understand why Moses is on top of that mountain, but why, out of all the other people in the Word of God, is Elijah up there? Why not David? Why not Samuel? Why not why Elijah? Well, you know what? If you go back and you look up what, 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 what the Bible says about Elijah in the Old Testament, it won't take you long to figure that out either. You don't need to turn to these. I'm just going to list the passages for you, jot them down. The, the, the times you find Elijah mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures, 1 Kings chapter 17, first mention of him, where he marches into the palace of a wicked king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, that had turned God's people away from the worship of Jehovah to a false god, Baal. He walks in and he says, there will be neither dew nor rain until my word. And he turns around and marches out again and vanishes. He calls the judgment of God down upon the king and queen and the people that turn their backs on God. Second time you find him mentioned, 1 Kings 18. This time on top of the mountain for the battle of the gods. Not much of a battle, right? There was only one God present. But there were 400 and some prophets of Baal who swore there was a God, Baal. And remember, Elijah said, why halt ye so long between two opinions? If Baal be God, then serve him. But if Jehovah be God, then serve him. And the people didn't answer a word. So he said, okay, let's do this. Let's make two altars. You prophets of Baal, make your altar, put the wood on, put the sacrifice on, but no fire. And I'll rebuild the altar of the Lord. I'll put the wood there. I'll put the sacrifice on, but no fire. You pray to your false god, Baal, and I'll pray to the Lord God, Jehovah. And the one who answers the prayer by sending fire to burn up the sacrifice, that's the one that's true God. How's that? And the people said, that sounds good. So being a gentleman, Elijah gave the prophets of Baal the first option. So they started first. And I've seen the, the, the altars like that when I've been in Israel uh, over there. You, they're, they're flat, round altars, lower to the ground. They have steps that go up on them. You can go right up on the altar, walk around on the altar as well. That's why as you read the scripture there, it says they put the sacrifice on and they were climbing all over the altar and dancing on the altar and crying out to their false god. And remember Elijah was razzing them a little bit and saying, hey man, might be need to yell louder. Maybe he's on vacation. You know, it's not very funny because I've been to some of these false religion temples in the world. I had the opportunity to go to the second most well-known uh, Buddhist temple in the entire world is just south of Tibet in the northern India uh, province of, of uh, Sikkim. And when you stand outside and you watch people going in, there's a row of tubular bells that people ring on their way in, and there's another place where there's some bells hanging from a, uh, an archway, and they ring those bells when they go by. Everybody that goes in rings these bells. You know why they do that? To wake up their God. So he'll listen to their prayers. You know, my Bible says, my God never sleeps. I don't have to wake him up. He that keepeth thee shall not slumber, yet he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. My God's on the job all the time. I don't have to wake him up. He's not on vacation someplace, so I've got to wait till he comes back or whatever. So Elijah was saying, maybe he's traveling. Maybe you need to cry louder. Maybe he's away on a vacation. Maybe he'll come back later or whatever else. But in any case, all day, he gave him plenty of time. Nothing happened. So finally, time of the evening sacrifice, he said, my turn. Rebuilt the altar of the Lord, put the wood on, put the sacrifice on. And then you remember, he dug a trench around the altar. That was odd. But what he did next was even odder. He, he sent fellows down the hill. It was a hike to a nearby brook where there wasn't a lot of water. Because remember, it's been two years with no rain to bring four times four barrel loads of water, a very precious commodity at the time, up and do nothing but pour it all over the altar, all over the wood, all over the sacrifice. It filled up the trench all the way around. Every Boy Scout, if they had them back there, biblical Boy Scouts, would have scratched their head and said, what is this guy doing? You don't start fires by soaking everything with water. 
But he prayed one simple prayer. Lord, would you send fire and turn the hearts of your people back to you? And fire fell from heaven and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones of the ground, the dust of the earth, and every drop of water in the, in the trench. That's some kind of an answer. We have a word for that. Vaporized. And the people immediately fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. And what did Elijah do? He said, you take all 400 of these prophets down to the brook and kill them. Slay them all. And the judgment of God again was meted out upon those that have turned their backs on God. Third time you find Elijah mentioned, 1 Kings 21. This time he appears in the garden of a man recently deceased. Remember the story of Naboth? And how Ahab had a, had a, a palace in Jezreel, and next door was a, was a garden uh, owned by a fellow by the name of Naboth. And Ahab wanted to buy that garden, and he said, look, if, if you won't sell it to me, how about if I trade you for a better piece of land or whatever? But you see, the Jewish inheritance laws said that, that the property could not leave your family. Naboth couldn't have sold that property to Ahab if he wanted to without breaking the law of God. The only way it could be sold was if there was nobody left in his family to be able to inherit it. Ah, the plot thickens. For when Naboth wouldn't sell to Ahab and refused to, Ahab went back home, remembered to his house, turned his face to the wall, got the poochy lip disease, all that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. His wife Jezebel, finding out why, what made him so upset, determined to take care of it, so she marched out and she proclaimed a feast to honor Naboth and instead had false witnesses prepared to come and accuse him of blaspheming God and the king, which meant, if you look up the law, not only would he have to be executed, but his entire family. Which means, oddly enough, no one left to inherit the property, which means Ahab can have it. So there was Ahab with his scribe in the garden telling him where he wanted to plant the rows of this and that, when all of a sudden Elijah shows up out of nowhere and says, Ahab, who do you think you are? You would murder someone for a piece of ground. Ahab, the dogs will lick your blood in this very piece of property, and they will eat your wife at the gates of Jezreel. Two chapters later, both things occurred. And the judgment of God again was meted out upon those that had turned their backs on God. Last time you find Elijah even mentioned in the Old Testament is 2 Kings chapter 1, where he's sitting on top of a hill when the uh, arrogant king of Israel sends 50 soldiers and their commander down to the drag that country preacher in here to see me. And the first commander with the soldiers goes down and repeats what the king said. And he said, if I'm a man of God, then let fire fall from heaven and burn you and your 50 up. And they were vaporized. And the king sent another 50 that were foolish enough to do the same thing. And they also were vaporized. And the king sent a third 50. And that fellow finally wised up that commander because he crawled up the hill on his hands and knees and said, excuse me, thou man of God, sir, don't burn us up. But would you go, would you go with us to see the king? Doesn't take much. Look, folks, honestly, it does not take much examination of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament to find out that much of his ministry was a ministry of judgment. Bringing the judgment of God upon those that have turned their backs on God. He stands very well on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. See, somebody, when I said, wait, why is it Moses and Elijah? Somebody said, oh, I know why, because the Bible says, to him give all the law and the prophets witness. So there's Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. That's good. But there's something better, you see. If Moses is a picture of the law of God, Elijah is a portrait of the judgment of God upon sin. 
And I'll ask the question again, why is it that these people are trying to get rid of the Ten Commandments out of our classrooms, our courtrooms, and our civic buildings? Look, it's quite simple, folks. If you admit there's an absolute law of right and wrong, then you must of necessity admit there's an absolute authority, God who gave it to us, before whom all men will one day absolutely have to give an account of themselves. And they don't want to think about that. They think if I can get rid of the Word of God, if I can get rid of the Ten Commandments, I can get rid of Christianity, I can marginalize all that stuff, I can live in my wickedness and go my way without any consequences. No, every sinner is going to face that same law of God one day at that judgment of the great white throne. So, number one man on top of the mountain, Moses. Picture of the law of God. Number two person on top of the mountain, Elijah. Portrait of the judgment of God. Ah, well, praise God, there's a third person on that mountain. Amen? And standing between Moses and Elijah is who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the personification of God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. Standing between God's law and God's judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ. I was preaching once in California. A young man said, Preacher, I don't believe in a God who wants to send people to hell. I said, Neither do I. He said, Yes, you do. I said, No, I don't. He said, Yes, you do. I said, No, I don't. He said, Don't you believe there's a hell? I said, Yes. He said, Don't you believe that sinners who die go there? I said, Yes. He said, Don't you believe if I'm a sinner and I die, I have to go there? I said, Son, if you die and go to hell, I can assure you on the authority of God's written word, it was not his will for you to be there. He said, how can you say that? Because 2 Peter 3, verse 9 of the Bible clearly says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3, 16 said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? That whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says in John 3, verse 17, for Christ said not, came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's word makes it very plain to us in, in John 3 verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, praise the Lord. He that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. One look at Moses reminds us of the law. We've all violated. We've all broken God's law. We're sinners in the sight of, an, of, a, of a holy, righteous, and just God. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. So one look at Elijah reminds us that we're deserving of the judgment of God. Death, physical death. Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed unto man once to die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment when a sinner dies, their body's buried in the grave, their soul goes to hell. They suffer not forever, but until the day of the judgment, when it'll be called out of hell to be put back together with the body, to stand before the throne of Jesus Christ, to face the law of God they violated, the list of every sin they ever committed, the land's book of life where their name won't be written, and then to be cast into a lake of fire, which is the second death, or the death that never dies. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see God's love. God's grace, God's mercy, and that while we were yet sinners, what does it say in Romans 5, verse 8? But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2, 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Between God's law and God's judgment stands the Lord Jesus Christ, who came, was born of a virgin, with sinless blood, lived a sinless life, so that he was qualified to die the death that he died, a substitutionary death in your place, in my place, in the place of every other lost person in this world. Why? So that anyone who will come to him and turn from their sin, Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Be serious about it. Look, God's not in the fire escape or fire insurance business. If you don't mean business with God, he doesn't do business with you. And if you've never done so before, you can come to God tonight and say, Lord, I don't want my sin anymore. I don't want to go that way anymore. I not just because I don't want that judgment. I, I don't want to live in that way anymore. I'm willing to turn from that. Let you change my life. Then what? Believe on Christ. Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe. Believe what? That Jesus is God, that he is the Lord, that he came and died, that he paid the price of your sin. Remember Romans 10, 9 and 10? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, with the heart, man, believeth unto righteousness. Who's ours? No, we don't have any. His. And with the mouth, confession and made unto salvation. Then what do we need to do? Repent, believe what? Then receive. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even in them that believe on his name. Why? Because it's a gift. It's already been paid for in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's offered to us for free. But it must be accepted to do us any good. How do we do that? Romans 10.13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never done it before, boy or girl, teenager, man or woman here tonight, you can come to the Lord Jesus realizing, thinking about Moses, that we've all broken God's laws, that you've broken his law. Thinking about Elias, Elijah, that we're all deserving of God's judgment, but focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ who paid his price for all of us and rose again that we might be saved. And I like what the Bible says in this passage in our chapter we've read tonight. God overshadowed him with a bright cloud and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the disciples had prostrated themselves in fear before God. What happened? It says Jesus came and touched them. Every lost sinner in this world needs a touch from the Savior. If you're not saved tonight, you need a touch from the Savior. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And get this now, read verse 8. What does it say? And when they had lifted up their eyes and looked, who did they see? Moses, the law of God, pointing a condemning finger in their faces? No. Was it Elijah, like a dark storm cloud hanging over their heads, ready to burst? No. When they lifted up their eyes and looked, they saw now what? No man save Jesus only. Only God's grace. God's mercy and his love personified in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would challenge you here tonight, whether you're boy or girl, teenager, man or woman, whether you've been here before or not, whether you're a church member or not, to be certain that you've repented, that you've believed on Christ and that you've received him, that you know your sins have already been forgiven and washed away so that if your life came to an end tonight, you would be 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Not absent from the body and present in the lake of fire or in hell as Luke 16 says. You say, well, preacher, I've already accepted Christ as my personal Savior. I've already been saved, and I'm not worried about going to hell. And if I died, I know I'd be going to heaven. Yeah, but you know what? There's still some of us who are still, as believers, living in willful violation of some of those commands of God. Well, wait, preacher, I thought we're free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Yeah, some people think that means sin all I want now. I got God's permission. 
But folks, what the Bible teaches us is that we are no longer required to obey God's law because we have to. Now, we should desire to obey his word because we want to, because we love him. It doesn't save us. It doesn't keep us from being saved. If we are saved, we will follow his word. We will want to please him. But I ask you tonight, as we went through those commandments, did the Spirit of God convict you that even though you're a Christian or claim to be a child of God, you may still be living in willful violation to one or more of those commands? Are you taking God's name in vain? Are you lusting after somebody in your heart, committing adultery in your heart? Are you, are you worshiping yourself rather than God and running everything anybody says through, whether you like it or not first, even God's word and the preaching of God's word? Are you dishonoring your parents, etc., etc.? Did God's Spirit speak to your heart and say, Hey, listen, you may be saved, but this is an issue in your life. You need to deal with God about it tonight. Because the Lord Jesus Christ didn't die so you could stay in your sin. He died to save you from your sin. And if we've truly been born again as a child of God, then our life is going to change. Praise God for the three men on the mountain. Moses, Elias, and above all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together for a prayer tonight.